Thank you, Amy, Eric, Casey, Brian, Kenton. Thank you. Does anybody ever go on Google search rabbit trails? It's not just me. You start getting curious about something, and wouldn't you know the internet is happy to engage your curiosities, right? Um, etiquette. Etiquette is a weird thing, right? Where the knives and forks go on the on the table, uh, the things that your grandmother slaps your wrist about growing up, don't do that. Every time I went to my grandparents' house growing up, I'd come home with some new manner learned, yes sir, no sir, how to make my bed Navy style, those kinds of things. But, but etiquette is this kind of ticky-tacky stuff. Um, and I was curious about where it comes from. And the answers are weird. You want to hear them? Yeah, they're weird. First of all, like saying bless you after someone sneezes, we do that a lot these days, right? Um, saying bless you, that dates back to the year 590 CE, at least, uh, 590, yeah, when Pope Gregory I commanded that anyone who sneezed must immediately be blessed for fear that they had contracted the plague, right? We know what that feels like. Um, bless you, bless you. Um, shaking hands, something pretty common. It was something done several hundred years ago in England as a means of showing that you and the person you were greeting were unarmed. How's that for hospitality? Nice to meet you your weapons keeping your elbows off the table i'm terrible at this one uh so this one dates back to like medieval times when you wanted to, to dine with the lords and ladies right and the, the invitation list would get long so the tables would be crowded at these feasts and so there's the practical sense that you couldn't have your elbows out and like crowding the people around you but also you know you were there with the sophisticated people and if your elbows were on the table it made you look like you were really hungry like one of those you know peasants and you couldn't look like that right you had to look like you were someone of some means, right? Um, covering your mouth when, you're, when you yawn, like some of you do uh, in about 15 minutes here. Um, <laughs> in addition to being just like polite, it also, dating back to 1653, it, it, or I'm sorry, before then, it was uh, perhaps thought to be that your soul was escaping your body, so you had to cover up your mouth, or, or maybe again, a, another sign of the plague. A lot of our etiquette goes back to the plague, it turns out. Um, Here's some quick hits. We do bridal showers because back in the day, if parents didn't approve, the bride would need a dowry to offer to the husband's family. We uh, touch glasses when we say cheers just to make sure that no one's glass is poisoned because then everybody's is, right? Uh, we RSVP because that's French for répondez s'il vous plaît, which is French, I don't know. Um, not pointing at someone dates back to directing your evil eye energy at somebody. We don't wear white after Labor Day because it separates the ultra-rich from just the kind of rich. And we pull out uh, women's chairs for them very traditionally because back in the day their dresses were just too daggum big and they literally could not pull the chair out. Somebody pull the chair out and put it underneath me, please. Etiquette, it, it's silly. It's the things we do, why? Because we do them, and we look back as to why we do them, and we go, why do we still do this? You know? But at a, at a deeper level, there's these sort of social expectations and, and pressures that come with being human, life on earth, life within community. There is pressure and expectations placed upon each of us in different ways. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're presently feeling pressure or expectations weighing down on you and it's not about keeping your elbows off the table it's something deeper than that all of us face pressure and expectations in different ways and the question i want us to wrestle with today is how can our faith help us in those moments how can our faith be a source for life in the midst of lives that are full of expectations and pressures that can feel kind of suffocating at times 
We're continuing in a worship series called Living Lent, where we're looking at stories of Jesus and, and trying to embody them, trying to step into uh, his experience, his lived experience in life on earth to understand how that experience is an invitation for us uh, to live likewise. Today we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark beginning in chapter 1, verse 32. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 32. As you can imagine, it's chapter 1. This comes early on in the story. Uh, Jesus has just begun his public ministry, and we'll hear the expectations and the pressures are already beginning to mount. It says, that evening at sunset, people brought to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases, and he threw out many demons, but he didn't let the demons speak because they recognized him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. He replied, let's head in the other direction to the nearby villages so that I can preach there too. That's why I've come. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and throwing out demons. For the word of God in scripture and for the word of God among us and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. So to understand this story, we in a way need to understand the gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel is the first one recorded, and it's unique in a, in a few different ways when we compare it to the other three. Storytelling was different back then. Not everything got written down in the moment. In fact, very little did. The gospels that we have in our Bibles are, are recordings of stories that were told and refined and perfected over decades. Because in that day, buying parchment and writing things down was not easy. Parchment was expensive. Literacy was only for those who were very privileged. And containing a, a personal library would have been only for the most wealthy in the community. And so writing stories down wasn't really a benefit for the community at large. So the gospel started out as oral stories, verbal stories that you would just share. And when you think about the way that people tell stories, uh, for instance, here's a simple story. It's a silly example. So I went to the grocery store, and then I went and picked up a jug of milk, and then I went and got a box of cereal, and then I went to the cashier, and then I spoke with the cashier, and then I paid my bill, and then I went to the car, and then I drove my groceries home. Now, there's a phrase you heard over and over in there, right? And then, and then, and then, and then. When we read the Gospel of Mark, we hear that kind of language throughout. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's like you're sitting there in the crowd listening to the story being told. It's the Gospel that sounds like it's being written almost in real time as Mark is sharing it, right? And it also has this sense of urgency. The word immediately is used so many times in the Gospel of Mark. If the Gospels were movies, Mark's Gospel would be a Michael Bay film. Nothing but action the entire time. It is constant action all the time, right? This summer, Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. Like, that's, that's the effect that it has. It's a crowd pleaser. It's action-oriented. It has no time for sitting back and reflecting. You know, John's Gospel would be like that art house film. We're just like, it's a shot of a houseplant for an hour. What does the houseplant communicate to our lives and our existence? We don't know. I know, it doesn't sound like an exciting movie, little guy. It doesn't. Uh, I'm a Michael Bay fan myself. 
So um, let's, oh, sweet boy. Every time I hear a kid in church, it reminds me our church is not dying. Amen? Amen. We are grateful for your presence, little man. So um, uh, the Gospel of Mark is action-packed. There's, there's four main characters in Mark's Gospel. That's the second thing we need to know. First is the sense of urgency and its action-orientedness. The second is the main characters of, of Jesus, you know, starring Jesus. The disciples. Uh, then there's this crowd, this ever-growing, ever-looming, ever-needing crowd that is already forming here in chapter 1, right? It's the town gathered outside the door. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the crowd is this growing thing that always wants more and more and more out of Jesus, and you feel that pressure laying on more and more and more throughout Mark's gospel. And the fourth character is the Pharisees, who are essentially a, uh, meant to represent the leaders and the power structures in his land and in his day. And they're not growing necessarily in number, but they are growing in opposition, in frustration, in anger, and ultimately in their willingness to put Jesus to death, right? So the, knowing these are our four main characters, knowing that Jesus is living this very action-oriented gospel in Mark's retelling, isn't it interesting that here in the very first chapter, just a couple dozen verses in, we see Jesus what? Step away and intentionally rest. In the midst of a very urgent, action-packed gospel, Jesus pauses and takes time for himself. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, several times throughout the Gospel, we see Jesus intentionally praying, or it mentions him sleeping, or it mentions him resting, or going off by himself. It, 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 it's a stark juxtaposition against the rest of the Gospel as a whole. And whenever you notice something kind of out of place in a Gospel, you should pay really close attention, because it's likely the author's trying to tell us something. And this week, as I was reflecting on this text, what I considered... Mark trying to communicate to us what this gospel may be inviting us into is that when our story becomes action-packed or when expectations begin to rise, moments of rest and refocus become all the more important. When our lives become more action-packed and expectations begin to rise, in that moment Jesus slips away early in the morning just for a moment, not a Sabbath day, right? Not a three-day weekend, but just for a moment to rest and refocus. It becomes all the more important. I think about a couple of years ago, right around this time when the whole world was shut down, right? And we were all watching Frozen 2 13 times in a row. At least that was my lived experience. I don't know about yours. But for some people, myself included, there was a benefit from that season, as challenging as it was, is it forced us to sort of stop and to sit and to reflect and wonder, who am I? Why am I here? What is my life about? I've got all this time with my family I didn't have three weeks ago. That's really good. Maybe I like that. There was, there was something about being forced to come to a halt that actually created a positive outcome for many of us. Maybe that wasn't for you, but I see other people in the room nodding with me. That was a helpful moment for some of us. And here's the sad thing is that over the last two years, as things have gone back to normal, one of the things that's gone back to normal is stepping back into a life that seems to rise in chaos and complication and pressures and expectations. And has anybody else over the last couple of months felt that tightness in their chest and the business of their life begin to take over like I have? Is it just me? Or are you with me, church? Like returning to normal, sometimes I realize, you know, normal wasn't so good. I didn't like normal that much. 
And reading this text this week at the end of what has admittedly been a very hectic, chaotic month in the life of my family, it just, it just impressed upon me the fact that here early in Jesus's ministry, Mark's gospel is intentionally calling out that moment of rest and refocus, that moment of recapturing clarity. And it impresses upon me how when our lives become the same, that rest and refocus becomes all the more important. Let's talk about the text itself and that line, that line, oh my gosh, this image just works for me. The whole town gathered around his door, it said. People brought to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. That sounds like a kind of wild image, and it's meant to be, I think. It's meant to be almost a caricature of literally everybody in the town is pressing in outside the door. Oh, is he, is, can you take one more? You know, can you imagine how it felt to be Jesus in that moment with the whole town pressing in? Do you know what it feels like to feel like the whole town is outside your door pressing in? All that expectation, all that pressure, the second that door opens, there it is. That's a heavy place to be. That's a difficult place to be. You know, Mark's gospel doesn't start with a birth narrative. Jesus doesn't get to have a childhood in Mark's gospel. He doesn't get to grow up. He doesn't get to ease into being the Savior. He's plopped into this action-packed story. And from the almost the very first moment, everybody has expectations of him. Everybody is crowding around. I wonder if Jesus felt that pressure within his own self. I wonder if Jesus felt the tightness in the chest, the burden in the shoulders. Does anyone else's muscle right here get real tense when you're stressed out? I wonder if Jesus felt that muscle tensing up. I would like to believe he did, because I believe that's part of the human lived experience, right? It's important for me that, that Jesus in this story actually reaches a breaking point, even in this very early moment, and has to go off and be alone. That says something about who Jesus is, about how, who God is. The fact that Jesus is, is not Superman in sort of this uh, you know, untouchable sense, that he, he sees the crowd outside the door, and he was about to go to bed. It was sunset. He's like, I'm supposed to be in my jimmy jammies, getting my beauty sleep, and you want me to cast out demons right now? I'm tired. And then he goes out to find himself some time alone. It's like 4 a.m. He's thinking, surely nobody's around. And then here comes Simon Peter. God, that guy. Hey, Jesus, good thing we found you. Everyone's looking for you. Can I have a minute, please? It's helpful for me to see a Savior who reaches a breaking point early in his story, who needs that time away. And not necessarily time alone. Notice that Jesus goes off by himself, but he goes off to do what? He goes off to pray. It's this beginning, Mark's giving us this first little hint that there's, in this Jesus, this, this hint of what we call Trinitarian theology, that Jesus is God and is also in relationship and communication with God. And in this holy moment of prayer, Jesus is, is going to God, his loving parent, and, and having a quiet, trusted conversation. And what I believe he's doing is he's acknowledging his need for help. I need some help. When I feel the tightness in my chest or the, the pressure in my shoulder, that's a clear indicator for me, I've learned over the years, that I need to go and find someone I can trust and to have that conversation of, I need some help. I'm at a breaking point. 
And thankfully for me, over the last few years, I've been able to put a structure in place where I, I go to see a therapist once a month, and, and I take the meds that my psychiatrist takes, tells me to take because it keeps my body in balance, say amen, somebody. And, and I'm able to get through months like this past March, uh, not a shell of myself, but, but certainly having reached a breaking point and being able to sit across a, a table from my man, Terry, and Terry can say, Scott, how are you this week? And I can allow myself to cry. And I can feel the tightness in my chest releasing. I can feel that shoulder begin to release a little bit because I was willing to go by myself to someone I can trust to have a quiet, trusted conversation and to say, I'm not okay, but I will be, but I'm not okay right now. And that's okay. I think it's important for us to see this in scripture. I think it's important for churches to hear it from the pulpit. And I think it's important for you to hear that if you're in that kind of place right now, there is help. And it's not weakness to say, I need help. It's not weakness to seek out a trusted friend. And if you don't have that, if you could have the, the, the trust in, in me or someone in this church community, on your phone right now, send an email. I need some help. Because I don't believe anybody should have to feel like the whole town is pressing outside the door and they have nowhere to turn. That's a scary place to be. I think it's important that we acknowledge a Savior who reaches a breaking point, who needs help. It's important for us to claim strength in that as well. Amen? Maybe living like Jesus means acknowledging this is too much and I need help. Can we put an end to the worst theology ever created? God will never give you anything you can't handle. My goodness. I don't, that's a whole other sermon to unpack it. But if you've heard that message, if you've internalized it in the past, here's some good news. Life is frequently too much to handle, and we all need help. And that's a sign of strength. Then Jesus leaves as he, as he exits his moment, and I mean moment. Homeboy got four minutes of solitude at 4 a.m. before Simon Peter tracks him down. I'm such a golden retriever. I just imagine Simon Peter is like the most well-intended, but just the worst choices so frequently. God bless him. He comes and finds Jesus and says, come on, come on, you got to come back. The town is looking for you. They need more demons cast out. They need more healings. Let's, let's go and do it. They are about to build a statue of you there, Jesus. This is going so well. And what does Jesus say? It's time to head in a new direction. Even after this moment by himself, this moment in prayer, he says, it's time to go in a new direction. I need to preach and heal over there. That's why I've come. Having a vision is an important thing. Having a vision for your life is important. At AUMC, we have a vision statement for this church. We call ourselves a 5C church. This was really clever. Y'all came up with this before I got here. I thought this is really clever. It's alliterative and everything. I love alliteration. I know Pastor Blair did too, so I know why we were a 5C church. We are creative, constructive, forward-leaning Christian community committed to becoming more like Jesus, right? It took me a long time to memorize those proud of myself but that vision statement is important for us why because it tells us what we are called to do and even more importantly sometimes it tells us what we are not called to do right we're one church we are one church in dfw there's like 85 churches in a mile radius around this one church right 
we are not Jesus Christ. We are not going to save the entire world. We are called to be one church for one purpose, and that is a 5C church. And by having that vision, it becomes almost like a filter. It allows us to know what is that good and holy work that God is calling us to, and then also, what is that good and holy work that God is not calling us to? It's not that God only calls us to good stuff and away from bad stuff. Sometimes there's a lot of good stuff, and you're going, I don't know what to do. And that's where a vision becomes very helpful. Visions are gifts for people, too. A vision, a personal vision for your life can help you know what you are called to do and also what you are not called to do. Because here's the tricky part, you can be really effective at things that are beyond your vision or God's vision for your life. And so heading the other direction as Jesus does can be more difficult than we give it credit for. It's walking away from a job that you are really good at and get paid really well, but it's not your life's calling. It is choosing amongst three or four really important things that you could spend your time doing and knowing which one desire or needs your, your most attention. It's about prioritizing things so that I know in my life, uh, Reagan's going to come first and Andy and Jude are going to come second. And whatever committee meeting, I love you building maintenance team, if push comes to shove, building maintenance team isn't going to beat Andy Jane. I'll tell you that right now. Right? I love you guys. It's not going to happen. Personal vision for our life helps us clarify what we are called to and what we are not called to. Jesus, to re-clarify and sort of recapture this vision, in the midst of doing a lot of good, healing and casting out demons, a lot of good, he goes off by himself to pray. And through this prayer, he seems to understand what he's called to next. I wonder if prayer could have the same effect for us. Now, here's the funny thing about prayer in this story. You know, there's plenty of prayers that we are allowed to listen into in Scripture. There's the Lord's Prayer. There's the prayer we'll talk about next week at the Garden of Gethsemane. But you notice in this one, there's no words. Jesus doesn't say anything. God doesn't say anything. Sounds pretty quiet until Simon Peter shows up. But it's a quiet prayer. I think sometimes we're scared of prayer because uh, we don't feel like we're articulate enough to talk to the Lord of the cosmos, right? That's intimidating. And you're like, I'm going to go to God. I mean, God has had people praying. Maya Angelou prays. How am I going to pray a prayer to God that's going to be impressive, right? That's a little intimidating. We think we have to be poetic or articulate or get the words just right. And so we're scared. We're intimidated to come before God and pray. But I don't know that that's what prayer is really about. I don't think it's about writing the perfect poem and sending it up to heaven. I think prayer is a lot more about opening ourselves. Maybe simply opening ourselves to silence. And, and sometimes maybe we need God's voice to break through loud and clear. But notice that's not what happens here for Jesus. He's not looking for a cloud-parting, earth-shaking kind of voice of God moment. Instead, he's just in some quiet, in some stillness. I wonder if rather than hearing God's voice in this moment, he simply remembered that, to, that, that which he had already heard. Sometimes I think we feel like we need to hear God's voice in our lives, but sometimes we need to simply remember what God has already spoken over us. Maybe there's that deep-seated vision that you received at some point in your life. You, you sort of knew why you were here, why you exist, what you are called to, and maybe that time of prayer is simply a time of quieting and centering oneself and going, oh, right, I'm not called to this really good stuff. I'm called to this really good stuff. Maybe prayer doesn't have to have so many words involved. Maybe we simply need to quiet ourselves 
and our lives and our pressures and our expectations and our chaos, chaos for a moment long enough to remember who God has already called us to be. You know, in a moment, we're going to gather at this communion table behind me, this Lord's table, that invites everybody, everybody, in the midst of all of our pressures and expectations and all of our stress and all of our chaos and all that we are and ever will be, it, we're invited to gather once again. And, and this table doesn't demand etiquette. We're going to eat with our hands. Right? It's not very COVID appropriate, but oh well. Um, we're going to eat with our hands. We're, we're barbarians uh, at the communion table. And we're invited to bring the pressures of life and to receive God's grace in return. There's something about this communion table that helps to remind us in a quiet moment who we are, who we are, and why we are here. So whether you come forward with prayers that you need to lift to God, or maybe you just come forward with ears that are ready to listen, or maybe you just come forward with a chest that is tight and needs releasing, maybe you come forward with a heart that is open and ready to receive, however you come forward. My prayer is that we could all come forward and to remember how God loves us, who God has made us to be, that we could encounter the real presence of Christ as the one who sends us perhaps in a new direction. So my friends, may we like Christ recognize our need for rest, acknowledge when we need help, and seek God's vision for our life. May it ever be so. Amen.